Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation. Today we have Chris Varelis with us. He was listed among the top 100 deal makers by the New York Times and was named Top Technology Rainmaker by Dealmakers Monthly Magazine. After working as city's head of technology, media, and telecommunications during the first dot-com boom, uh, that is for our younger people. That was the 90s, <laughs> by the way. And then leading, the, I mean, you know, it, we're, we're in a world now, uh, uh, Chris, where, where things change so fast. 1998 is, is like the first millennium, you know, after Christ uh, uh, these days. Things move so quickly. Anyway, uh, the first dot-com boom and then leading the company's National Investment Bank and regional offices. Varelis left City in 2008 to co-found Riverwood Capital a premier private equity firm in Silicon Valley. He has a book out, uh, just out, with his co-author Dan Stone. It came out early in November. The title is How Money Became Dangerous, the inside story of our turbulent relationship with modern finance. Welcome, Chris. Yeah, hi, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Greatly appreciate it. Sure, sure. I mean, I mean this, is, this book is a little bit off, uh, off of our usual uh, topic of religion, and politics and, and culture. But I have to say, it was such a great read. And you do go into a lot of sort of the broader cultural world of finance capitalism from the boom days of the 1980s when you went into this world up into the present. And we'll start with something you begin with. It's an interesting distinction where you say uh, straight off the bat that there were there was a time not all that long ago in which finance, family finances, uh, uh, career finances, seemed rather clear and simple that you would just look down at your... I'm, I'm actually going to read the, the opening paragraph. The world of money used to be simple. A person might have both a checking and a savings account, a home mortgage and a car loan, and maybe some basic investments in the markets like municipal bonds or shares in Sears Roebuck or General Motors. But rarely were a person's finances more complex than that. Wall Street wasn't particularly controversial. The financial services industry didn't have a reputation for being impersonal, selfish, and reckless. Most of the time, it was seen as just another facet of a functioning and growing society. That all started to change rapidly in the 1980s as our financial system became increasingly complicated and so on. And your book tells the story of that extraordinary complication and acceleration from the time you went into this world in your early 20s until your position up until today. Let me, let me ask you, just in, in terms of the big picture, how did this change happen and how did it happen so fast? Yeah, it, it's happened in one generation. You know, our parents or my parents, you know, I always say they only cared about two numbers and they were both years. It was the year they paid off their mortgage and the year they qualified for their pension. And, and that's pretty much what they needed to know. And then over the last 30 years, these changes, these incremental changes have happened where the complexity of the financial system has increased greatly while the, our connectivity and our understanding and the accountability in the system has dropped. And as complexity and accountability have diverged, it's created these, you know, these really difficult and challenging situations. But it's hard. It's not one thing. It's it's like many, like many complex, you know, dangerous situations. It's usually multiple things layered on top of each other over many years. And we basically in the book track what we think are the ten most 
the, the 10 biggest changes and inflection points that have, have taken money to this place where no one really understands it or no one feels comfortable with it. You know, people tell me all the time, I feel like money is controlling us as opposed to, you know, opposed to we controlling money. And, and, and it seems so complex that they just don't know where to begin. And so this book is basically an attempt to explain that these forces to people who have no background in, in finance or really ability to, to dive in and understand the industry. And, and the feeling that all of us are vulnerable to what happens in the financial sector in the way with the 2008 meltdown. I mean, how many of us uh, say to ourselves, wait a minute, I, I paid my mortgage. I wasn't in debt. Uh, I, I, had, I had my credit cards. I, I tried to pay them off each month. I was saving money and I got hit in 2008 and I still don't understand why it happened. I mean, how many people actually do today know what happened in 2008? The full story. Yeah, you know, it's the debate rages. I don't I I have not seen agreement in terms of what truly happened. And and in terms of understanding, yes, I mean, very few people saw it coming and those few that did profited off of us, profited off of it, which is a whole different story, which is, you know, who actually can see the story and who has accountability and sort of an incentive to to warn. But yeah, we all woke up in 2008 and realized wow, the world was much more correlated and connected and complex and dangerous than than we had expected. I mean, who who knew that Greece getting into trouble was going to impact my 401k when I didn't have any investments in Greece, right? And all of a sudden, it, you know, that mattered. And I was a good, I got a mortgage, I was paying my mortgage, everything was fine. And, you know, look, the Occupy Wall Street movement, I think, was really indicative of like, people were angry, and they knew something was amiss, but it was too complicated. They, they, this group couldn't articulate the challenges and the problems. And if you can't articulate the challenges, how can you possibly come up with a solution? And yeah, everybody, everybody now, given the interconnectivity of, of the system, is impacted. And it's not just financially; it's also socially. There's lots of social implications to these financial institutions, financial complexity. It's changing our communities. It's changing the way we interact with one another. It's changing our, our mindset on many, many social issues. So the book not is not just a, here's why the financial world could impact you from a monetary basis, but also how it's changing your day-to-day -day life. You know, I'll, I'll mention one story with a question, and then we'll get into some of the details in, in the book. But around 2007, I was out in Orange County, uh, this is where you're from, and I, I'm, I'm from Southern California myself. I was out with my brother, who lives over there in, in Newport, and he, you know, he'd play poker with some guys. And this was, this was late 2007, maybe, maybe early 2008. We're playing poker, and one guy works for, I think it was Wachovia Bank. And we're just talking, and he said, by the way, you know, we, we, you know Wachovia, uh, we, we, we bought the, the sector of Golden West, I think that was. Uh, that was the, the company. We bought Golden West, and Wachovia is doing great in 85 90% of its work. But there's this one area of mortgages, and it's killing us. I mean, it's, 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 it looks like this could really become a problem. And I said, but, but, it's, but it's such a small part of, of Wachovia. I mean, I bank with Wachovia. I said, Wachovia is massive. And I mean, how can how can this small thing take take be, be so threatening? He said, "Look, look, this is going to be serious." 
And, I, you know, I should have paid attention, right? And, and, uh, and reacted. But had things gotten so close to the edge that any area of threat could, could, could bring down the whole house of cards. I mean, d- d- does that story make sense to you, well, what I said? is It It makes total sense. And, and you know, I, I think we most of us have seen it. It's a Wonderful Life and that great scene where they don't have, you know, all their money is in the mortgages and the houses around them. And they don't actually have the li- liquidity because the money is invested, you know, in, in helping people own homes. When there's a run on the bank, they don't actually have the cash in the bank to, to pay it off. And so they uh you know they have to convince people not not to withdraw the money you know that scene is just writ large magnified in this world where so much of our system is leveraged and and um assumes a liquidity that is not you know deviations from the mean of requirement so once the trust is lost and once there's you know the concern that that I'm going to be left out then it doesn't really take a significant um, shock to the system if everyone reacts to it in order to put the whole system at risk. And so even 5 to 10% of any asset class, if people on the margin are like, okay, I'm going to get out, then that trust is lost and the system is not, is not upheld because – will not hold because no, no system based on trust can – handle a situation where that trust is lost. And and that was the most shocking thing about 2008 was that everyone just felt this exposure. You know, I remember talking to traders on, on I'd left Solomon, but I, of course, I called Solomon Brothers because they were always the most knowledgeable people. And I said, wow, this just, you know, this feels very concerning. And, you know, I remember one trader telling me, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's China syndrome, which, you know, for those of you not familiar, it's like the nuclear plant melting all the way through the earth to China. And it was very, it was very scary because the really smart people, the people who supposedly knew what was going on, could not really assess the damage and the, and the potential. And, and what's scary today, just fast forward to today, I think another scary fact is the people that know the most, the people in the financial world and the technology world, they're the ones, and we cover this in chapter nine, they're the ones that are spending the time prepping for the potential demise of the system, you know, preparing for sort of the end of world and the number of people doing it. And I think it's scary that the people who know the most and have the most are spending the most time and energy to, to protect themselves. And so their, their solution isn't let's jump in and be leaders and change the system. Let's, let's withdraw and make sure we protect what we have. I think that was one of the fuels to this recent populist sentiment that the experts, uh, the, 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 top, the top people, they're really in it for themselves and, and they'll sacrifice us if, if, uh, if, if they have to. Um, and the, the, the finance people, I think, fall under that, fall under that resentment that, that comes out of a lot of populist feelings. But getting back to, to your story, you come in in, in the early 80s when things are really starting to explode. In, in the finance world. And the interesting thing is you, you went from you know, probably the most contrary cultural place on that Disneyland, uh, which you say is a, a great, was a great exercise in nostalgia. That was, that was sort of the commodity that Disneyland offered. And that while you were there, 
is when we got one of these first famous hostile takeovers that was a, a common term that we heard in the 80s and, and the 90s, right, which we don't hear very much anymore. What, what happened there? Yeah, I was, uh, I was working at Disneyland, paying my way through college as, as a host. And in 1984, Saul Steinberg came in and did a hostile takeover, which may, basically means he put a bid in, bought shares in, and, and did a bid to acquire the company and take control of the company. And that was the real first shock to Main Street. That was when Wall Street and Main Street really met for the first time, even though they were obviously aware of one another. It was like, okay, who is this? Who is this guy that's coming in to buy an American institution, which most people even viewed like didn't even view it as a private company. They viewed it as like, okay, this is a national treasure of, of you know, of America, if not the world. We we grew up watching the wonderful world of Disney. Right, creating American values. And all of a sudden here was this Wall Street guy who was coming in aggressively buying up shares and saying, you know, I'm going to change things, right? I'm going to change things and I'm going to shake things up. And, you know, change is the enemy of tradition and Disney is the ultimate tradition company. And so it seemed like some foreign, it seemed like an attack. And to me as an employee and to us as employees, it was like, who is this Wall Street guy that's attacking us? Yeah. Why does he, does he, he doesn't, he doesn't live in Southern California, right? He, he didn't have any interest in running the company, correct? Yeah, it's debatable in terms of, I mean, he clearly saw an undermanaged, underutilized asset. So sitting in New York with, you know, with his analysis, he's like, all right, here's a company that has real value. And it did. I mean, in the end, he was right. It was being very poorly managed. And even though he didn't take control of the company at the time, he made a lot of money off of it. It did. It was a forcing function for management to change and to start focusing on creating the business, growing the business, putting out a better product that wouldn't continue to jeopardize the performance and therefore make the company vulnerable to takeover. So as much as corporate raiders were, were vilified at the time, they did recharge American business. And this is one of the themes of the book. Every Within every change, there's tension, there's good and there's bad. It's why it's so hard to resolve these because as much as we didn't like the corporate raiders and, and we can question their motives, they did change American business, recharge business, and, and basically could, you could argue was the basis for the, you know, the last 35, 40 years of growth that we've seen in corporate the corporate in the private sector. You, you do have some mixed feelings. I mean, that, that's what you're saying now. You do have some mixed feelings. What do you think, we, we have greater efficiency, greater productivity, better management. What what was lost in this process of, of the, the takeover, the the reorganization, and, and, and so on? What was lost? Yeah, what's lost, the whole system is globalization comes in. It's one of, it's one of the themes and trends of the book and finance. Finance has come up, you know, became about scale and scope and efficiency. How do we get the most products to the most people at the cheapest cost and for whose benefit? And it's the one industry that interestingly is targeting, it's targeting risk and it's targeting, you know, the wealthier, you know, the wealthier side of the equation. And so when, when you had the, you know, when you had the loan officer that knew you and could take a risk on you because they knew you were a good bet, people with 
little credit or marginal credit could could perhaps get access. But once it became about scale and scope and became centralized, it really became about, okay, who analytically is a good bat and you know who in the spreadsheet tells me that they're a good bat. And there's no you know, there's limited opportunities to to retain the humanity and the personal contact. Because for better or for worse, we all talk about going into these bubbles. The one thing that forced everyone out of the bubble was the need to 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 engage and to have commerce with one another. You couldn't you were we were all buying and selling from one another and interacting with one another and commerce was the driver that made you know was that created the the friction and the interaction of of humanity through time until interestingly really this generation. You know, we say technology is the financial technology in particular is is the means by which we create, you know, a system which requires us not to interact with one another. You know, you think about all of the technology advancements in the financial world, they're really about how do I lessen the friction between humanity and my need to interact with someone. It's just just one example. But throughout the system it's it, you know, it's it's discon we've become disconnected more and more from the financial world and from from each other as a result. So you you give us that rendition of a hostile takeover from the position of someone who's working, you know, a kid working there at Disneyland. You have another eyewitness to a an extraordinary event that was in the news quite a bit, and this is your interaction with your dear dear friend Nazareth. <laughs> do you want to tell the Do you want to tell the story of what what you were doing and who who Nazareth was? Yeah, so I I. Get my first job. We always joked at Disneyland. What was your real? What's your real job going to be when you graduate from college? And mine was a commercial banker, loaning money for Bank of America to diamond dealers and gold wholesalers. And one of them was one of my favorites was Nazareth Antoni and Lebanese from Beirut. Beirut. And, and how old are you at this time? Twenty-two. Just turned twenty-two. How how did you become? How did you become a figure? I mean, I, I read this. To tell us how you became a figure. Who would be responsible for for something you know handling a lot of money and dealing with a lot of pretty pretty rough businessmen? Yeah, it it, it shows you how turmoil leads to opportunity, right? Um, you know, and the saying "Gone with the wind, the great fortunes are made in the rise and fall of empires." And so, when I joined Bank of America, which a lot of people thought it was for life at the time because we hadn't transitioned to a world where you know it was much more transactional as it is today from a career standpoint. And, and so I should have been on the training program for a year and then worked my way up. But Bank of America was going through immense turmoil. And so there was a lot of turnover of loan officers. And so I got the battlefield promotions and all of a sudden was a corporate banking officer loaning, you know, loaning money to these, you know, to these people. And, you know, with basically very, very little training. But I was told it was all about character. So as long as you understood them. So I thought, okay. You know, I can get to know these people well and understand them. And Nazareth was my favorite because he was so friendly and affable. You know, think of Woody Allen, but Lebanese and friendly and funny and joking. And you know, there was an you know that was the time when everyone said, "Hey, babe, this and hey, babe, that." But he would get it backwards, and he would you know he would say, "Baby Chris, how are you today? What's you know what's up?" And we would talk about life and everything. And really friendly and you know the type of guy you're just rooting for you just want him to succeed because he's he's a little frenetic but he's so hard working and you know his gold business was growing dramatically 
um, you know, to the point where it was just leaps, you know, millions and tens of millions of dollars. And he started selling gold bullion, or that's what he claimed, which was high margin, sorry, low margin, high cash business. So just going gangbusters. You know, it was like he was the American dream in a sense of come to America, start a business, become very successful. And he starts pumping piles and piles of money into your bank every month, every every week. And he he brought you into a back room at one point when you just sort of asked a little bit about that. And what, what did he show you? Yeah, he showed me, you know, I asked him because he was coming in, you know, in the movies, you can fit a million dollars in a briefcase, but that's not, I guess it's hundreds maybe, but when you're dealing with 20s, they're really not. So he would come in with duffel bags of cash and paper bags with his family, his brother and his father, like, you know, cash would be spilling out on the way in. It was quite a scene. And so I'd asked him, I said, you know, that is, this is a lot of cash. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to show you, uh, you know, he showed me a, basically a stack of gold um, that he was selling. What he would do is he was buying and selling gold to other gold manufacturers to supply them with the, with the, you know, the gold they needed to make their jewelry. And so he would literally show me a stack of gold that he was in the process of selling. Because they were, they unlike today where it's all about commodity, you know, it's all about options and the like, you never actually see the product. They actually needed the gold to make the product. So he was actually physically, or claimed he was physically selling the gold. And and he showed you, how, how big was this, was this pile of gold he had? Oh, you know, it's probably about three or four feet high and, you know, bars were four feet long or so. I mean, you know, gold... As we say in the book, you know, all the gold in the world, known gold, is like one third of the Washington Monument. So, I mean, it's big, but it's still, I mean, that's a, that's still a, that's a big deal to have that much gold. And what happened then? Well, what happened then was um, through a process that involved another customer of mine, they, you know, the DEA got involved, and you know, I got summoned and questioned and. You know, I went and felt like, okay, I should, I should tell him as a friend. So I went in to see him. I said, Nazareth, I don't think this is a big deal, but you should know I was questioned by the DEA or I was questioned with the DEA president. The, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Drug Enforcement Agent, yes, exactly. And, and, and at that moment, everything changed. He turned and he gave me that look, that piercing look, which to me was just, you know, if you work at you know, he worked basically at Disneyland and all of a sudden you have this person looking at you with like this deathly stare. And I knew in that moment that, that he was, he was clearly laundering money and I had not, you know, appreciated that fact. I just wanted to believe and given him the benefit of the doubt and, and everything. And I was just like, I just got to get out of here as fast as I possibly can because this is not the person that I thought he was. And later he showed up on TV. Showed up on TV. Um, you know, the facts were stunning. It was the largest investigation ever done at that point. They, you know, basically did a ring around downtown LA and arrested him and I believe 55 other people and carried everything off. Longest trial, I think, still in the federal court system of the US. He was laundering money for the Medellin, Pablo Escobar, the Medellin cartel, he was their number one um, launderer, um, over, did over a billion dollars in the end. Um, and then he received the longest prison sentence ever given in U.S. history over 500 years and still, still serving time in, in Northern California. There's another colorful character 
in the book. Who was Paul Moser? The Paul Moser was this mus- he wanted to be a musician, um, but I guess wasn't good enough. So he ended up trading bonds on Wall Street at Solomon Brothers, and Solomon Brothers is was the king of Wall Street in the '80s, and their predominant feature was they they were a bond trader, so government bonds in particular. So when the government issued bonds. You know, Solomon basically was the intermediary. It's not like the government, which is the U.S. government, just sells it to you and me. They sold it. They sold it to investment banks, and then those investment banks turned and sold it. Sort of like think of it as a distributor. And Moser was the number one bond salesman at Solomon, probably in the world at the time. Given you know more one, he traded more bonds in one day than the value of the entire you know New York Stock Exchange equity value. Just to give you some perspective, so massive. It's a massive, multi multi trillion dollar market. And he started um, when there was an issuance. He started buying it all up. Figuring, well, if I buy it all up, this is a product that's needed for so many reasons. Um, whether it's to hedge, whether it's to invest, you know to fill out a portfolio, whatever it is. Government bonds serve multiple purposes because they're the most stable um, you know, instrument in the world. And he figured like, well, if I buy 100%, I can just sit back and, and you know, have basically a monopoly and then charge higher prices to those that need it. So he was basically cornering the market. And then, and then the Fed said, no more, you can't do this. So they started putting limitations. You can only buy 35%, then you can only bid on 35%. And he was basically secretly using means to circumvent that and break the rules and was monopolizing issuances even after the rules had changed. He, w- he was a master of the universe. He was, a, yes, he was when, and, and this was the other, yeah, master of the universe. When Bonfrey the Vanities came out and gave that one of those great phrases to the world who, who and, and the author actually modeled it after uh a Solomon Brothers trader, not Moser, but a different one, uh, Penn King, who's actually in chapter two. Um, and so, yeah, the, the masters, Solomon was probably the the great collection of these masters of the universe. They, they just, they don't like limits, right? The, the government said 35%, you, you can't buy more than 35%. He just said, no, no I'm going to, and I'm going to find a way uh, around it. Uh, what, is, what is the psychology that we saw in the 80s, you know, the Gordon Gecko psychology, the, the, that movie, I don't know how good of a movie it was, but it caught something about the, the Wall Street climate. What, what was it that, that gave us this masters of the universe uh, persona in, in those years? Yeah, great question. I always say Wall Street, I think half the movie is amazing and half is terrible from someone who's in the Wall Street. So it creates this very interesting dynamic. But, but yeah, it was the time, it was the time when it's like anything when you're the first, when you're unleashing, because the financial industry really wasn't unleashed. It's creativity, it's power, it's reach, it's scope really wasn't unleashed until the eighties. And we were just learning what to do. And, 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 you know, they're almost equivalent to the, today, the tech world where they're almost like gods on earth. Like it's like they have, they've created such power and force and reach and, and, you know, his rationalization was, well, you know, the the more aggressive I am, the lower the interest rate to the taxpayer. So his view was, you know, look, I, I may be reaping huge profits on the end, but in order to corner the market, I do have to like, I do have to aggressively win, which means lower tax dollars. So he almost said like, look, this is a win-win, you know, other than the people on the other side of my trade, it's the win. So, so they start, they actually rationalize like, 
I'm just a great person doing great things for the world. And, you know, what is their training? Where is the leadership? You know, where in chapter two, it's basically like there's no accountability in the system because it's no longer a partnership where it's your money. It's now other people's money. And so, you know, once it's other people's money, you're able to take these huge risks that then yield huge bonuses to you. We, the classic heads I win, tails the firm loses mentality. And, and when you're getting paid this much with this much control over the financial world, it really went to their heads. Their ego is huge. They think, you know, they think they're gods on earth. You, you know, let me let me finish with, uh, I mean, there's so much more in, in the book. We, ju- we just scraped the surface of, of things, really the first hundred pages, and, and we have several more, and there are many, many other episodes, such as that of U.S. Filter, which is another extraordinary uh, personality that we see there. But uh, what do you think it was about you that enabled you to keep your head? I mean, I mean, uh, Mazur ended up going to jail, right? Milken, Michael Milken, you have you have a profile of him. He and how long did Milken go to go to jail? A couple of years, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these figures that they they went close to the edge and then they went over, and they they ended up uh, they ended up disgraced at least temporarily. Uh, Milken, you say, has has come back. He's a hero once again. But uh, what was it about your background? that held you with a feet, a little feet more on the ground in, in, in spite of your, your success, in spite of being at the center. You were at Solomon. Uh, you were, you were at, at uh, some of the, you, you went to Drexel. Well, yeah, I offered a job at Drexel. Yeah, but constantly surrounded by people that, you know, you could say were immoral in cases, but often amoral. You know, a lot of the people aren't grounded. I, I think, you know, you could, I have to credit my parents and an upgrade upbringing that, you know, had a very high, high standard, moral standard. But it's all it's also the realization that contextual relativistic values don't work. Right. Principles are principles. Right. If something's wrong, if you think about, okay, once it's cast in a different light, then it's wrong, then it's wrong, right? You can't, you can't do that. And the other thing is too, I have to say I was drawn, I realized that it was a strength. I always say that, you know, the darkness declares the glory of the light. And it's like, it was almost like my differentiation to be the honest broker in the land of amorality. And so it was actually a, a differentiator. And, and I, I found that it was a way, it was a it was a winning strategy. So not only was it, I think, an ethical strategy, but for me, I wasn't going to compete with these guys. Like I, I'm not. I wasn't the type that was going to go into the ring and, you know, go toe to toe, punch for punch. And so I had to have a different angle. And my angle was, which I learned in that first story in the jewelry industry, like either you're selling trust or you're not. And if you're selling trust, it means you have to do it over a long term and be very consistent because you lose that trust. And this is true of the whole industry as well, whether it's a person or a system or whatever, an industry, it takes very little to lose that trust. And so I had to be very, very consistent and careful. But do you think that if you were at times more aggressive, more more risk-taking, uh, well, I guess it, it, it could have turned out badly or it could have turned out better, right? We We... We, we, we don't know, but it seems like when you come off in the in these scenes with people that uh, you do, 
I don't know if it's that you lack the ego or or just the inherent aggressiveness or simply again that 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 sort of moral reserve that that allows you to take one step back before plunging the way so many of these other figures do. Yeah, and I think you need to, we need to separate which people don't do. You need to separate risk from morality, right? You can still this is the really tricky thing about the industry too is you can still be moral and take risk. That's that's a separate thing, but typically risk takers and people willing to push the line often get attract, you know, get get correlated and attracted to one another. And and you know, we do this there's this one piece I reference called Shooting an Elephant by Orwell which, you know, he shoots this elephant, which he knows he shouldn't shoot because he's pressured to do so. And everybody is like, okay, it's okay. And we want you to, so he does. It, it's it, people, what what stops you? It's a really interesting question from whether it's it's religious beliefs or morality or ethics. You know, that's the real question for the financial industry. Where's the leadership that's going to stop you from shooting elephants, doing things that you know are not right? Who is holding us accountable and where where is that leadership? And if it doesn't, I think it has to come from the individual and then these individuals have to have that that leadership role. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I mean, I think first and foremost, it's it's my parents and then another is, help to be a philosophy major and study all of these, you know, religious philosophies plus Kant plus you name it. And then realizing that the long-term, the only sustainable long-term strategy is one of principled action. I mean, the, the crooks in the business, the the only people that made money were the honest people and the crooks, but the crooks business wasn't sustainable. It was like one of these, unless you could continue to get these one, one off repeat transactions where you're selling diamonds to people that you're never going to see again, right? It's the one time engagement ring sale, but that's just not a, I guess the one message I'd, I'd love to give that's really not in the book is it's just, that's not a sustainable model. Um, and that's the beauty of our, of our, humanity in our system that that the good action is also the one that's that's the, probably the one that's going to win long term the book is how money became dangerous the inside story of our turbulent relationship with modern finance chris verilis thank you for joining us thank you thanks for having me on mark